Welcome to the Unfiltered Podcast with me, Joe Warner, and powered by Ultimate Performance, the world's premier personal training experience that delivers maximum results in minimum time. In each episode of the Unfiltered Podcast, I interview the most respected, celebrated, and controversial experts in the fields of health, fitness, nutrition, well-being, and performance to help you find the life-changing advice you need to live smarter. Remember, you can find all of our exclusive unfiltered documentaries, video interviews, and investigations at unfilteronline.com and the Unfiltered Extra YouTube channel. And now, on with the show. There's no such thing as non specific pain. Could we start by, or could you start, sorry, by um, expanding on that? A little bit, please. Well, I to be specific, I don't believe in non-specific low back pain, which Sorry, is yeah, a very I... common diagnosis that people get. Yes, and uh, there's several reasons for that. Uh, first of all, I believe pain is very specific if the person has had an appropriate assessment. So, if the person hasn't had an assessment, they get a uh, an, a, a nomaker, if you will, for the symptom. They have back pain. But if I came to you with non-specific head pain, what would you do? You'd, you'd want more specifics, right? You'd want well, to find it. A, it, it, it wouldn't be. caused it, the uh, mechanism of. Uh, yeah, it, it, it wouldn't be tolerated. So no. why do we tolerate non-specific back pain? Uh, it doesn't make sense. So that is the first uh, issue. The second one is the impediment of that label uh, from a psychological uh, burden to the person. They have nowhere to go, no clues. And uh, it, it, it doesn't help the scientific uh, development of uh, matching an appropriate intervention to an individual whose symptom is pain. But let's take two people. One person uh, reports that when they sit at the computer for an hour, they get low back pain. That's the symptom. Yet going for a walk relieves their pain and they feel fabulous. But the person sitting beside them shows the opposite. Standing and walking causes their pain and sitting down causes their relief. So right away in those two categories, neither has nonspecific pain. They have very specific pain, one triggered by sitting, the other triggered by walking. So that's the beginning of it. And what clinical intervention would be poison for one is helpful for the other. So when you read a study about nonspecific low back pain, statistically, it doesn't even satisfy the criteria of statistical validity. You must have group homogeneity. So, uh, you know, we get all of these issues like, oh, well, posture doesn't matter for back pain. Well, that came from a study of nonspecific back pain in kids. If I did a study on kids who were smoking, do you think we would see a relationship relationship between smoking cigarettes and cancer? No, because there's a delay. Over time. And it's exactly the same with uh, the delayed response and the cumulative trauma mechanism of uh, mechanical insult resulting in a violation of the biological tipping point and what turns out as discomfort, eventually turns to pain, that eventually turns to injury. So I can give a very 
simple example of that of simply laying in bed. Stress concentrations develop in your musculoskeletal components. Uh, and if they're there for a long period of time, they eventually become uncomfortable. Think of laying in bed. If you don't change position, you will become uncomfortable. If you do not move your posture, change your posture, migrate the stress concentrations, the discomfort turns to pain. If you still ignore and do not migrate those stress concentrations, the pain turns to injury and they're called bed sores. Yeah. So there is a very simple example of how uh, there are studies of nonspecific back pain that rightly conclude posture has no effect on pain. However, if you then subcategorize uh, the person who sits and they slouch and you determine that that causes their pain and then when they sit in an extension, it takes their pain away and the next person comes in and they fit the category of when they extend, that causes their pain and when they slouch, it takes it away. Do you see that if you are triggered by flexion, yep. flexion matters, posture matters. If you're triggered by extension, extension matters. Yep. If you are triggered by a mechanical variable like spine shear, if you shear your spine, it matters. So my point is all of these things are variables that can be quite easily determined, subcategorized, and now the person is uh, becoming a little bit empowered. They know what movement patterns uh, take their pain away. And once they learn that, the locus of control goes to them. It is so empowering. The psychological dissonance of being told you have nonspecific back pain, learn to live with it, evaporates. Yeah. And I think that's such a kind of important, but perhaps undervalued, underappreciated point that, that you're so good on that others perhaps might not be. And I mean, speaking from personal experience, there's nothing like back pain, right? There's nothing like it, you know, you injure your knee or you injure your, your shoulder or whatever. You can kind of, you know, find a comfortable position to lie in or whatever it might be back pain especially with with no end in sight so you know you just have this idea oh it's non-specific there's nothing you can really do we know the mechanism of action that you know will drive people nuts after a while you know it makes people desperate right and and i i know you've seen it's, some it's, of this it's, it's it's horrible it yeah makes people suicidal i uh, uh and was, i think uh, you, you I, I gave a talk in london not not yeah. it was just before the pandemic yeah. And I noticed a fellow sitting off to the side, hunched over, looked like a cashew nut sitting on the side. But he was yeah. a big, sort of impressive-looking guy, except his posture was terrible. And he came to see me in the break. He said, Professor, I have chronic, nonspecific low back pain. I used to be a police officer. I lost my job. I... Uh, have been told by the NHS, they gave me a pamphlet, how to live with my pain. They are telling me the pain is something that I am magnifying in my head. I can't stand this. My career is gone. My family is doubting me as a psychological case. I think I'm going to end my life. And I said, oh, okay. Would you do me a favor? I'd like you to 
uh, go back to that chair, and we were still in the break. And I said, do you have pain right now? He says, yes. I said, stand up, watch me. I just told you that he sat in his pain. Yeah, yeah. And is. he moved into his pain even more. And then I tested him and I said, can you balance your ears over your shoulders, your shoulders over your hips? Become a little bit of a peacock. And he said, oh, that's a little bit better. And then I said, spread your knees apart. Free your hips. He had tight pants on, which was his pants were contributing to the posture that was creating the stress concentration in his pain. And I said, now watch. Lean forward through your hips, pull your hips through and stand up. Make your hands big. Slide them down your pants. Grab your knees hard. Push your shoulders away from your ears and show me your triceps. Now, change the curve of your back. And you find the curve where the pain goes away. And he says, yes, I can. I said, good. Now, keep that posture. And I gave me some little coaching cues on how to preserve that. Pull your hips through and stand up. Johnny, within three minutes, he was absolutely elated. He was just empowered. For the first time in his whole experience with the medical system, he learned he was in control. He sent me an email about a week later that was one of the most angry emails I've ever read. Oh, angry he was at the medical system that he has now realized caused him to lose his job and trash his life. Yeah. I mean, that's, um, it, again, it's tricky to, to, to sort of, I mean, that's a very compelling example. Um, and I think what, what does that, I mean, it sounds like negligence, doesn't it? For, from the medical profession in, in certainly in that case, I mean, what, what do you attribute that? Well, may I just comment on the word negligence and yeah. hold your thought for the rest of it? Because yeah. I, I'm getting old, Johnny. I can only carry one deep thought at a, <laughs> at a time. So you use the word negligence, and I, I wouldn't use that. Okay. On occasion, you will experience arrogance. But uh, I, I think the impediment for the medics is something a little bit bigger. The current medical system, the NHS in the UK and, and various uh, systems around the world. Medics, uh, I, first of all, what medic is trained in low back pain? Low back pain from the perspective of psychology, neurology, anatomy, biomechanics, physics, you know, it, they don't exist. No. Uh, so medics are trained to perform a procedure and they are assigned a billing code to bill for that procedure. So if you go for a surgeon, they are trained to use a surgical device and they bill for that particular uh, procedure. Uh, same with a neurologist or a rheumatologist or whatever, the, the, a physical therapist even. Do you know or can you name one profession who is paid to do a thorough assessment of back pain? The answer is they don't exist. We, uh, I, when I started the experimental back pain clinic at the university, the, the dean said, okay, you know, hotshot professor and scientist, <laughs> uh, start a, uh, uh, an experimental research clinic. And I assigned two hours 
did the initial uh, assessment so I could try and understand the impediments in that person's life that caused them to fail the previous 10 medical attempts to get better. I had to understand their movement habits and stress concentrations. I had to provoke their pain in those various postures, in those various activities, and then give them the mechanical opposite to see if I could take their pain away. If I could, that was very powerful for me for organizing an intervention. It was very powerful for them to show them that they had uh, control over this. Then organize a program to wind down their pain and then build up the athleticism again. What's the dose given their age and previous injury history, genetic background, all the rest of it? Yeah. So do you know... After the first year, I changed that two-hour appointment, and I made it three hours. Wow. That's, as you said, no one, <laughs> so, no one does anything. I, I, well, I don't know anyone else who does it. And then they'll all say, well, that's, uh, what's, the, what's the financial model? How do you get paid? We, we can't do that. We have to see so many patients per day, or they right. get 15 minutes per patient. I said, well, you're doomed to failure. Um, you're doomed to failure until you charge for your time. And that's how we do it. We charge for time. And, and this isn't boasting. It's only a proof of the, uh, the model. Uh, we bill for our time. And it's actually cheaper uh, because the number of follow-up visits, sometimes it's zero. Sometimes it's, it's two or three. Now you've changed that person's life. Am I talking through my hat? I don't think so. <laughs> I've uh, put on uh, education programs for groups of clinicians who are paid by a certain insurance company. Uh, they halved the number of visits they needed to uh, fix or change that person's life from a pained state to one where they're back uh, uh, sufficient. Now, um, yeah, were, were they cured? No, but they learned to manage their pain. Some were cured, but... Uh, certainly, uh, not the majority. They learned to manage their pain to subclinical levels. And uh, I noticed in your introduction, we've done that enough times uh, with world-class uh, athletes. Some people will say, oh, well, you know, do I have to move like this for the rest of my life? Um, why don't you watch the hockey game? Uh, I just happened to turn on the TV last night to watch. My wife is a hockey fan. I couldn't care less, to tell you <laughs> the truth. But I watched the game, and there are two of my patients playing yeah, that's the, uh, NHL last night. So we've restored careers in virtually every sport. I, I remember one Olympics where I think we had something like 40 athletes from around the world who had been consulted with and we're, we're now uh, competing. That's so we've done it so many times, the content validity in that, I think. Absolutely. No, no one has anything close to that kind of track record or that kind of experience. I mean, not not even in the same ballpark, you know. I think that's um, something people, you know, listening and, and and watching should should certainly appreciate. And I think, I mean, there there are lots of things that are unique about your approach. But another thing um, that I've heard you mention before is that in this assessment, in this very comprehensive assessment, you actually start off by the fireplace upstairs learning about them and learning about so all the sort of, sort of stuff we touched on earlier that kind of mental side of things before you even begin the physical and i think that's an i mean do you still do that have i got that correct you do there's yeah. a story 
uh, behind that. Please. When we were at the university, the architect of the clinical wing built uh, a, a very nice assessment room with a gas fireplace for the very purpose of creating an atmosphere to interrogate and extract information. Think about what I just said. That to interrogate because I mean, back pain already like information, right? Back pain's already like so torture, right? So yeah. we would we we would take the client or patient, and I never sat in front of them. I always sat at ninety degrees off to their side. They sat in front of the fireplace, and it would sometimes take uh, three quarters of an hour for that person to really reveal why they are failing. And uh, Johnny, I was brought to tears with them many times. I, I had one uh, officer, high-ranking officer from the United States, whose job it was to interrogate. And uh, uh, th these are people who were illegally crossing the border and, and that sort of thing. And he, I, I finished the assessment. He said, that was the most masterful interrogation I've ever seen. And that's my business. Where did you learn that? And I said, well, that's, I purposefully went out to, to try and obtain and hone those skills. But, you know, someone will say, I, I remember one uh, patient who uh, she'd been in jail. Uh, her, her husband was a, a, a criminal and uh, she, she came out of jail and uh, she said, well, you know, my therapists have shown me similar exercises before as to what you sh just showed me, she says, but I, I, I can't do them. If I got down on my living room floor and, and did those exercises, my husband, the, this criminal animal, he, 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 that would trigger him into a, a sexual behavior. And I thought to myself, you know, you, you live under this it, it, within this environment, uh, you know, I, I was about to cry my, my, myself, the torture that some people live and uh, the, the forces, the tortures that they're under. But what I was telling her to do was going to fail. But it took her 45 minutes to get to a comfort level of real honest conversation and me listening. For, for that to come out. So do you see that that's a game changer in, in terms of our ability to have success? And and that that would only be one. There, there might be all sorts of financial constraints. Uh, yeah. You, you know, but you have to learn those to get people to experience a different clinical result than the previous dozen failures. And that's the thing. Often people will come to you after a dozen unsuccessful, you know, interventions. And, and then, you know, it, it, it's this. <laughs> no one gets fresh back pain and says, oh, we're going to go off to McGill. It, it no, exactly. Happens. And, and exactly. you know, I, I will, uh, there are some days I wake up that there might be 200 requests to see patients from around the world. And there will be a few names that I recognize that I, I you know, there are people who run countries or, <laughs> I mean, th these are uh, uh, people that make huge differences uh, in the world. But um, th there might be someone who I will just say, you know, what did your therapist tell you to do? Or go to your therapist. And if the therapist or the chiropractor or osteopath or whoever it is gets them better, I'm so happy, you know, yeah. that's fabulous. Um, 
And then I will say, if you don't do well, uh, then give us a call back and you know, we'll come up with something. Just just on this as well, for people, uh, and this might be a bit of a lifesaver for people struggling from back pain, your book, uh, just a, I, can, I can give you the plug, Back Mechanic, actually takes you through this obviously it's not going to be a subject uh, not going to be anything like seeing you but it does take you through this and and I've used it myself this sort of assessment to to give you some indication of of what's wrong and and how to fix it so I would encourage people to before you email uh, professor mcgill maybe read back mechanic um I know you've also got more you know more we'll, we'll talk about gift of injury and your your other books that are more advanced and books for clinicians but Back mechanic is a, is a good place to start, e- even for people who are desperate, right? Well, that's I, I only do things very purposefully. <laughs> I, I I don't have time to be, unfortunately, frivolous. And I had written books for doctors, clinicians. You know, low back disorders is a very clinical book. Heavy, heavy to read. Lots of references for late stuff. It's it's horrible. And uh, I usually only do things by request. I, I I don't have this great vision of life or anything like that. It's just people ask me to, why don't you write a book that we can understand as a layperson? Yep. Well, that was the hardest darn book I ever wrote. It took me five years to write Back Mechanic. The publishers said, uh, we need the title, Fix Your Back in Three Easy Steps. And I said, that's a lie. I can't do that. And they said, but no other title is going to sell. And I said, well, fine, go find someone who will write that, but it's not me. So I uh, wrote uh, Back Mechanic, uh, trying to seek this balance between truth and understanding uh, that nonspecific back pain doesn't exist. So I guided the reader through a self-assessment. What activities cause your pain? What activities do you tolerate or even take your pain away? And then I guide them through how to set that up on a table and look for commonalities of those things that help take their pain away. Uh, then I take them through a series of, I believe it's nine provocative tests. Sit in a chair, become chest proud, pull up, um, for the rest of the world, pull up five kilos per arm. For the Americans, pull up 12 pounds per arm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> anyway, I have a little bit of fun with that. But uh, And then change your spine posture. Does one cause pain or does one take the pain away? Now let's change nerve tension. Extend your neck, flex your neck, uh, straighten your knee, and these kinds of things. So we start to learn... Um, uh, is the is is the pain due to uh, a nerve source? Might be ir- irritated by a disc bulge or facet arthritis or whatever the case may be. Um, or uh, is it muscular? Is it so? Now the person has a target, um, and then we show them how to move in a way to avoid their specific pain triggers. Now we wind it down. And I use the analogy there of if you stubbed your toe, your toe would be sore. If you stub your toe tomorrow, it's going to become cumulatively more sore because you've now sensitized it. If you did this five days in a row, if you lightly touch your toe with your finger, it's going to scream. Agony. Yes. Yeah. You've centralized 
and and uh, sorry, not centralized, but you've sensitized that pain so much. Now, do you think doing toe, toe exercise is going to help you if you keep stubbing your toe? Of course, not at that point. Yeah. It's going to make it worse. Yeah. So the first order of business is to stop stubbing your toe. Yep. Uh, and regain a pain response that tells the truth because it's corrupted after you've stubbed it five days in a row. Yeah. So that's what we do. We wind down their back pain uh, sensitivity by avoiding the stress concentrations that the reader is now savvy to. Then it's a matter of rebuilding their body. And this, if, if I can riff on this for a couple of minutes, Johnny. Absolutely, please do. Yeah. So the body is a mechanical linkage. The hips and the shoulders are ball and socket joints, which are by definition, a ball and socket produces great force or torque rotational force through a great range of motion. That's power, force times velocity. The discs of your spine are made with collagen strands. They're not ball and socket joints, and there's a reason for this. But if too many people treat their spine as if they were ball and socket power producing joints, but they're not. Yeah. And that if I can use a, uh, a model, uh, these collagen strands contain a pressurized fluid, the nucleus, but it allows restricted movement. Now, if we had ball and socket joints, could you imagine stacking five oranges and then loading those five oranges? You would need a massive musculature with a very sophisticated control schema to, to allow that spine, uh, consisting of oranges and ball and socket joints to bend forward and tie your shoes or reach around to grab something behind you. It, uh, so to allow us to have a rather slender torso, uh, we have discs. They create more resistance to rotation the more you bend them. However, these collagen strands are held together with a gooey crown substance. If you move the spine over and over and over again, the collagen fibers begin to delaminate. If I take a fabric like my shirt and I create stress strain reversals, slowly they begin to delaminate. The disc is a biological adaptable fabric. That's its category by uh, architecture and materials from a biomaterials point of view. Yep. Now, put 100 kilos on your back and move and bend in a way that the pressurized nucleus is now forced to seek the delamination. And there you see it will come through. Most human motion is forward. That causes the disc bulges to drive posteriorly. So if I was to show you a, a disc here, these are all made by dynamic disc designs, which make the most biofidelic uh models yeah um so if you can see that little red mark right there in the back of the disc just observe i'm going to bend the disc forward and squeeze it let me pull that nerve root off there we are i'm going to flex and squeeze do you see those collagen fibers opening up I and do. some of the gel squeezing back now what is the antidote sit tall and now squeeze the whole disc um bulges as it 
squeezes <laughs> down, but you'll notice there's no hydraulic pressure driving through. Yeah. So if we add what goes in with that posterior disc bulge and the open pressure fissure, which we prove, we have them flex. Oh yeah, that causes my pain. And in fact, it causes my right big toe to go to sleep. Well, the nerve root that serves the right big toe is the fifth lumbar root on the right-hand side. So it, go look at the MR. You will see an open fissure there. Now, if you were to lay on your tummy, rest your eyebrow. Uh, some people, uh, and then breathe, letting all the air go and relaxing. Breathe on the exhalation. Breathe air in. And what you're doing is restoring what we call the natural lordosis to the low back. Yeah. And that, believe it or not, and I'm not talking through my hat here. We've measured <laughs> this. Uh, yeah. It vacuums in that disc bulge. Now, if you don't bend forward the next day, it starts to gristle. Yeah. And over time, you gain your resilience. And uh, sometimes it's a short adaptation. Sometimes it's years. Interesting. But it doesn't mean that uh, you you won't win in the UFC. I've proven that one. You won't. Win. It doesn't mean that you won't win uh, the Olympics in uh, well many many sports. Uh, bobsledding, uh, Greco-Roman wrestling, uh, boxing. Uh, <laughs> uh, oh, some of the fastest men and women in the world on the track. Same yeah. deal. So, uh, again, knowing all of this allows uh, a very specific strategy for a very specific mechanism leading to that person not performing well and in pain. So say there's, you know, an image taken of, of someone's spine, right? And it shows what, what people call sclerotic end plates. And if this is in a power lifter, people will say, well, hang on, they've, they've got, you know, structural damage and, and all this sort of stuff. You know, the, the, this, is, this is a pathology. This is a problem. Whereas, could you just kind of talk to me a little bit about you mentioned calluses, and I think this is so. I've got you know lovely hands with with calluses from lifting weights, but is it sort of correct? <laughs> you don't want to see my hands. <laughs> <laughs> it's well, it's uh, is it sort of correct to to think about these kind of sclerotic end plates as, as a kind of calluses on the spine? I realise this may be an oversimplification, but for people, you know, okay, I lift weights, I get calluses on my hands. Is it a sort of is is that an appropriate analogy? Is that could you talk a little bit about about that kind of thing? I'm I'm going to use the word partially. Okay, it's appropriate, but okay. I I can riff on that. And there, there's one other thing I'd like to riff on as well, which is the use of imaging uh, in general. Yeah, do, do you want me to start there, and then I'll get back to being more specific because you're talking about an implate fracture, which is a feature seen on an MRI image. Can, can I talk about imaging just for a start? Please do. Please do. All right. We might go back to another model. This is obviously a pelvis, a sacrum, and three lumbar vertebrae. Yep. Uh, if you took an MRI of that, well, you would notice some anatomical features. There's a little bony uh arthritic thing that's grown here over an SI joint that was a little bit you see the laxity in that joint so that pelvic ring 
was uh, damaged by, uh, let's take a tennis player who did far too many full lunge, deep, loaded squats because the coach believed that would allow them to reach further on the tennis court for a, a, a long shot. Problem is they became so disabled they couldn't bear load through their pelvic ring anymore. Um, there were, you could a, a good spine person would notice a couple of other features that you would uh, see on an MR and then be able to prove. By the way, we never look at the MR image until we've assessed the person. Uh, it's a great uh, disadvantage to put a image on the screen and start declaring to a person what is wrong with them because you will find terrific performers in the world with all kinds of anatomic, whether they're anomalies or things that you might generate pain. You must prove that they are the pain generator. So that's that's that. But you wouldn't remark tremendously on that spine. And yet this is one of the most painful spines, very, very common among people, but you'll never see it on an MRI. So this right. discussion, oh, well, MR is the gold standard. You don't have anything wrong with your spine on MR. You must be a pain magnifier. Right. Not true. Yes. So observe, I'm now going to apply a general twisting torque to this person's spine. Watch the mechanics. Do you see this joint here has lost stiffness? Yep. Consider a knee that has a torn ACL ligament. You do a drawer test and you determine the laxity, which is in true mechanical definition, unstable. Yes. So a stable joint has stiffness to control its motion. An unstable joint uh, produces shear, shear produces pain. Do you see the shear translations occurring at the damaged level? It's at the damaged joint, yeah. Right. So this joint has lost a little bit of height. Right. And now consider a car tire. Let a little air out. It bulges and the car is now sloppy on the road. You, It's lost stiffness. So you restore stiffness or turgor and now the car is in control. It's the same with the spine. Now, do you see that on an MRI? No. You have to apply dynamics and movement to see the pain-causing mechanism. So you see MRs just taking a static picture. It has very little hope to reveal the person's pain mechanism. You can only get it through a physical assessment where we will do uh, a provocative uh, uh, anterior, posterior, or it's called a prone instability test. We yep. will do a standing frontal plane test. We will do a torsion versus a torque test. Torsion is just applying the motion and resisting it, and you will get the micro movement without twist. Very pain triggering. Just to follow that up, one of the finest studies I did at the university was, again, driven by the medical system and uh, the legal system. Whiplash is a very interesting uh, situation because you know there's been mechanical trauma to the person's neck. Yes. Every single person in our study was at least one year post the incident that started the symptoms, the car crash. Every single one of them was declared a malingerer a pain magnifier and psychologically disturbed because there was no damage seen on an MRI. 
they were exhibiting pain behavior. Mm. We then took those people and put them in a video fluoroscopy machine, which is a real-time moving x-ray. And we would ask them, go through the range of motion that triggers your pain. Now, the pain wasn't at the end range because when you take a joint to the end range, it stabilizes it, stiffens it. You don't right. see the laxity as a rule. Now, yeah. you, there are special spine uh, situations, but most of their pain was they would look something like this. They would go from extension through to flexion, but in the midway, they go, and then carry on. When we watched it on fluoroscopy, remember a normal joint rotates with the center of rotation in the joint. But at the time of the pain, the spine shifts in shear and it clunks like this and then continues. Clunk, clunk, that's the shot that's the you know, pain. But that dynamicism and the mechanism of their pain is never seen in a static image. So you have to do video fluoroscopy to, uh, to uh, pick that up. So, so that's, that's more of the sort of gold standard. Aside from a proper physical exam, that's actually more effective than No, that. no, the physical exam is the gold standard. Okay. I would have I would have picked all that up long before I needed to go to a video. I just needed the video fluoroscopy to convince the jury Got it. that the I medical see. system was either arrogant, ignorant, or corrupt. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that's yeah. Pick, pick one or two. <laughs> <laughs> all three, yeah, but but, but they 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 couldn't, uh, you know, the, yeah. the medic defending uh, their call on the static image just had to sit there and say, oh, "I'm defeated. I, I this is new data now, uh, and a uh, a new technology." Which, of course, it's not a new technology. It was for some reason uh, they were on the payroll of the insurance company. By the way. <laughs> <laughs> you can take your your pick, but yeah, anyway, it's so uh, that is a illustration by example of the limitations of a static picture. Now, static pictures can be fabulous if they are used appropriately. Now, with that background, I can go on to your plate fracture. Yes, please. I? Yes, yeah. please. Okay, so I have. Uh, these are all real injuries that have been um, modeled by dynamic disc designs. They're brilliant in the biofidelity that they can create. So let's go back to your power lifter example. Yep. We have a power lifter who might do a competitive squat or a competitive lift from the ground. And uh, as you know, I've worked with probably 20 of the, the best in the world, because eventually they're going to cross the tipping point and have a back issue. Yes. <laughs> it's the nature of the sport. Yeah. So um, sometimes the primary of a power lifter is a compressive injury, not a bending injury like a, a disc herniation, but it's an implate fracture. So you can see the vertebra uh, is built like a barrel. This is the side of the barrel. This is the top and the bottom. But when we look at the top and bottom of the barrel, it's not solid bone like the cortical shell on the sides. It's actually yeah. a cartilaginous end plate. It's permeable. Uh, um, various biologics can traverse the barrier and that kind of thing. Yeah. So when you squeeze the disc, you pressurize the nuclear gel inside. It's an incompressible hydraulic uh, fluid. And there's a bulge up into the bone. So the bone inside here is actually hollow. The uh, 
total bone forms struts. And those struts, when you load them, form leaf springs like this. So there's a little bit of elasticity in there. Yeah. But if you overload it, the compression causes the bulge, uh, the end, the, the cartilaginous end plate to go into a dome shape and just observe there. Did you see the yep. white nucleus coming up through the crack? I can, yeah. Dome? So that's called an end plate fracture. Now, obviously, that's very gross. And if that happened to a weightlifter, uh, that's a bit nasty, and we're not talking about uh, a little bit of temporary pain for a day or two. That That's obviously major. But yeah. think of, without hitting the gross fracture, there will be micro fractures. Now, we uh, can, you can see them on very high-resolution CT scan. They're very rare. I only know of one scanner, which is where we did our uh, experiments. So you can start to see microfracturing occur. No other technology will show you those microfractures. So most people reading the study say, oh, uh, there was nothing on the MRI. Well, no kidding. It's, <laughs> it's nowhere near fine enough to catch the microfractures that occur. Yep. So that microfracture occurs. If you examine the uh, training regimen of, say, a bodybuilder. They might train on Monday, Tuesday they rest, allow the tissues to adapt, uh, Wednesday they train. So they train three days a week, but their primary is to uh, hypertrophy muscle. You tear the muscle on the day you train at a micro ultra structural level. The next day it, it adapts more strength and hypertrophy. So that is appropriate to hypertrophy muscle. But if they trained very heavy and created the micro fractures. It takes five days, typically, for that right. micro fracture to uh, scaffold in the ions of bone, magnesium, calcium. They're all charged ions, and I can explain the piezoelectric mechanism of bone adaptation if you wish. But if you're just satisfied with me saying it takes five days, yeah. So. Say on Monday, you squat or deadlift heavy. Uh, you build up a tiny bit of micro trauma. If you leave it five days, now let's talk about, well, well as you know, I've, I've worked with the world's strongest men competitors, uh, elite power lifters who, who've set world records that still stand today. A lot of people think they're undertrained. They might do heavy deadlifts one day a week. But they had to. They had to allow five, six days for the adaptation, the scaffolding, and the and the building a bony callus around that microfracture. Yeah. So if you look at a world-class strongman X-ray of their spine when they're in their 40s, and that's when many of them are hitting their peak strength, the bone is thick and heavy. The radiologists will say, oh, you've got sclerotic end plates as if it's a disease. And there are some diseases that, that are characterized by sclerotic end plates. But the radiologist had no idea that this was, oh, the great uh, Brit, say someone like uh, Andy Bolton, yes. some, the first man to pull a thousand pounds in a deadlift. Uh, in history, yeah. uh, they don't know the, 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 all. It's just a name and an image to them. So this yeah. is the failure of radiological practice, they never have assessed the patient 
So they can't declare whether that sclerotic bone was the adaptation that someone like the great Andy Bolton has developed for 20 years to enable him to pull a thousand pounds. Um, but he did have little micro fractures, but he, he trained in a way to uh, allow a positive adaptation. But the people who come and see you and I, they listen on the internet. Let's set your personal best on Monday. Let's get after it on Tuesday and train a little bit harder and a little bit more, not realizing that every biological system has a tipping point. And, and they'll you stay be below the tipping point. Yeah. You are in the anabolic zone you're building. Yeah. You cross that tipping point and build cumulative trauma faster than the rate of repair. You will eventually, just like laying in bed, discomfort turns to pain, turns to injury, that uh, end plate will suddenly, all of a sudden, the micro trauma. Yeah. So that's it powerful image so that's that's the story of understanding mechanisms of training and pain uh and adaptation and how you can exploit those to uh build uh athletic performance so uh, there are three things if i may that i'd like to pick up on that so the first one is well. So there's so much is going to be context dependent, right? Whose spine is it, and and what that what are they trying to do? You know, what are their goals and and all that sort of stuff. The second one is, I suppose, uh, and a lot of bodybuilders will be guilty of this. The muscle may have recovered, right? But but that's not to say that the other tissues, all of the tissues you just mentioned, have recovered. So I, I think that's important for people to to remember. Oh, I don't feel sore. That doesn't that you know that muscularly sore is is going to be very different. And I think the third thing. Uh, 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 okay, let me I'll, I'll remind me to come back to bodybuilders because they're such a unique situation. But carry okay, on, no, because I'd love to discuss it because we deal with a lot of body composition stuff, which is you know similar to bodybuilders right. essentially. Uh, and then the okay. third one is well, go on. I, I yeah, you, uh, well, you in the past year, I've seen, seen, yeah, in, in the past year I've seen two Mister Canadas and two Mister Olympias. Wow. So yeah, yeah, yeah. there's there's a start. <laughs> uh on on that discussion first um drugs are illegal in many sports because they help you heal faster and train harder so there's that's, a reason for it that's so there yeah that's, no that's uh, I'm, I'm not not saying that's the reason i'm okay. just saying this cannot be discounted so yeah. don't model your training if you're drug free on an athletic population who's elite you 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 probably won't respond the way they are because that's why they do it. Yes. Um, so that's point number one. Point number two, when you look at how a bodybuilder trains, um, A, it's usually short range when it comes to the spine. And, you know, they're doing a pull or what whatever the case may be. Um the other thing uh about them is is they're very massful. Now, mass stabilizes a joint like the spine. There is so much, um, uh, let me back up. Who else is massful? Well, you would see a person coming in with a great big girth, one so large it billows down, it actually rests on their thighs. I can't think of the last person with that, fits that description who hit spine instability. Why? They're walking around with hydraulic jack. 
all the time, buttressing their spine and stabilizing it. Isn't think, that interesting? It, that, that kind of classic strongman, what they call the power belly, is actually performance enhancing in that. Oh, it, absolutely it is. That's why they all have it, right? If, yeah. if, if I could hypertrophy a muscle and double its moment arm, I get double the arm torque for the same amount of muscle force. Conversely, for the same amount that I'm lifting, I only uh, sustain half the joint load because that muscle spans the joint. If it's got double the mechanical advantage, I've doubled the wrench handle arm, if you like. I only have to turn it on half, so, Makes sense, but that yeah. compresses the joint. Yes. So in in uh, Mr. Olympia, one that I have uh, am discussing, when you measure the size of his erector spinate bulk, which are the main extensors of the spine, yeah. he has almost double the moment armor, double the wrench handle than I have. Right. Now, so if we both picked up 100 kilo, which we can both do, his spine only sees half the load. See, yeah. So that in of itself is spine sparing. The second thing is all of that stiff muscle is a guy wire system. He's adding stiffness and resilience to the spine by the very fact that he is so bulky and uh, massful. Now, let's take a bodybuilder who has ruled the world. Now it's time to retire, lose weight, and regain their civilian health. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it, yeah. While they were bodybuilding, they were putting a lot of miles on their joints. The joints were getting loose. The, the discs were starting to compress in their spine. So when you shorten the distance, the joint naturally becomes a bit loose. But the mass kept them stable and together and made up for the loss of joint uh, stiffness or stability, which again is the correct bioengineering term. Now they lose weight. They ache. They have little micro movements in their joints. Oh, my hips, my shoulders, my spine just aches. If I go deadlift 500 pounds, three sets, my ache goes away. Yes, it does. So yeah. they are now almost mortgaging their future in that they need a certain amount of mass and a certain amount of controlling stiffness to arrest the micro movements and take their pain away. Or they um, avoid range of motion exercises and do stiffening exercises to uh, control those micro movements. And as I uh, explained to the, the one fella, give it five years, all this will go away. Your, your, your joints will slowly regain their stiffness. If you stop doing the mobility uh, and, and some of the other things uh, in their spine, so there's a subject den of one yep. individual knowing with precision the mechanism of their pain and pain triggers and what they as an individual must do. Someone will be listening to this and they'll think, oh, well, that's going to work for me. Probably it won't. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, anyway, that, that, th those are two uh, interesting stories. No, that's, that's, that's fascinating. And I think the stories make, make all of this, you know, quite oh, complex it, biological it, stuff more 
uh, more compelling. Yeah, sorry, carry on. Well, I just thought of a patient uh, that I saw uh, <laughs> from another country who was nowhere near uh, an athlete, but they thought they would start to walk and run to lose weight. And they were very successful. Uh, well, they're American, so they lost 50 pounds instead <laughs> of kilo or stone or whatever you want to use. Yeah. Uh, they lost 50 pounds and now their spine is a mess. And the assessment shows they've got heavy micro movements. So when they were heavy and chubby, yep. they didn't have uh, spine instability. Uh, they had a grumpy back for other reasons, but the mechanism changed with the loss of stabilizing mass. So I'm not saying stay heavy and you will have less back pain. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying there is sometimes in certain situations, a bit more management as the game changes. That's, yeah, that's fascinating. So there are a couple of things I want to sort of pick up on that. So the first one, um, I suppose, going back to the the kind of previous, uh, what you were talking about before, there's no way presumably to expedite this this recovery process it's obviously i understand it's going to be relative to the person and, and all that but it, it's it is approximately five days there's nothing you can do like taking collagen or increasing your intake of magnesium and calcium that would expedite it, it it's a case of stimulate and then recovery what goes through my mind there is <laughs> uh i uh you know, I have all of these wonderful friends around the world who, who are really leaders for various reasons. And you just prompted me to uh, a uh, phrase used by Dan John. Do you, do you know who Dan is? I do, the strength coach, yeah. Yeah, he's a strength coach in the U.S. And yep. Dan just has a way with words. Just a few words, and he just captures it. And, and I heard him say one time to a, a person, uh don't talk to me about your diet if you didn't eat breakfast this morning. And I just thought, well, that, that pretty much sums it up. So I would say, uh, don't talk to me about the supplements no, <laughs> when you have a much bigger problem driving your, your back pain. And it's a little bit arrogant and, and simplifying to say that, but you get the overall gist of the message. Get the big things right uh so that's the sort of appropriately yeah and if you're not training on at least a five-day rest schedule don't talk to me about supplements now okay. if you are and you're doing all of the things uh and you're two percent off the world record now the the conversation changes a little bit we're going to look for one percent here a half percent there three quarters of a percent there until we get that two percent and now we win so do you, do you see a context? I do, yes, uh, and I do. I can I understand what you're what what you're saying there for sure. That's the sort of eighty percent of this eighty twenty, right? That's the you got to get that that you know large proportion correct. So well, in this conversation, it might be get the ninety six percent right, okay, even higher than yeah, <laughs> and the, yeah, and then we'll talk about the remaining four if it so, matters. Okay, so that, that's really interesting. And does that apply to? Is it just the sort of heavy? So, say I, you know, we, we deal with a lot of body composition clients, for example, at, at, you know, at personal training, that kind of thing. So, obviously, certain adaptations take a long time, right? You don't want people deadlifting do double their body weight within three months of training. I've, I've heard you kind of talk about that, you know, because even if the muscles can handle it, then that's not necessarily doing them any good, and and it 
it's not necessarily going to help them in their daily lives anyway. So what about other types of, of training? So I know, and I'd lo- love you to talk about the biblical training week, which I think is is a really cool way of thinking about it. But just just quickly, so <laughs> I, I'm asking because I'm, I'm personally interested and I think a lot of people will be like me. So say I'm doing sort of, you know, heavy, heavy work on a Monday that's compressing my spine, right? A heavy squat or a heavy deadlift or whatever it might be. What about training other stuff, including weight training, but like other body parts or whatever on a Wednesday or on a Tuesday or on a Thursday in that intervening period? Obviously, I wouldn't load my spine. And this might be against sort of heavy full body workouts, you know, three times a week with a squat, a deadlift and a farmer's walk. But what if I do other stuff? So I know you kind of cover this in the biblical training week, but what about other sort of bodybuilding type in a higher rep range and easier sort of to recover from? Appreciate that's a long question and it's quite specific, but I'd love your thoughts. I get the overarching philosophy behind your question. So let me start with that maybe. As you go through life, and I'm in the back end of my 60s now, I started training when I was 15, and this this will be odd for a scientist using a personal example. I was all about being heavy. Didn't need range of motion. God gave it to me at that time, so that would have been silly <laughs> to do extra range of motion training. And I was interested in appearance and gaining mass, being faster for the sports I was playing at the time and that kind of thing. And then you go through life and you accumulate mileage on your body and it changes and it responds differently and your goals change. Exercises are simply tools to reach a goal. And you'd be surprised at how many elite athletes and their coaches will sit upstairs on the couch that you talked about and I'll say, what's your goal in that exercise? And it's silence. And they don't know. Well, well, an exercise is a tool to achieve a goal. If you're not achieving the goal, stop that and choose an exercise that does. So what are your goals? And that might be a very revealing conversation to them. So you may have a goal. You may have a client with a specific goal. Is really deadlift, farmer's carries, the best tool that you have to efficiently achieve their goal. If their goal is, I want to retire, I'm a firefighter. I want to retire from, I want to be um, occupationally fit. I don't want to get hurt. Yeah, I want to perform well as a firefighter. I have to pull bodies out of car wrecks. I've got to climb ladders. I've got to advance a loaded fire hose. These are all demanding tasks. I've got to be able to do that. But I want to retire from my pension and I want to play with my grandchildren. Well, you can train heavy deadlifts now, do heavy farmer's carries, but you have, again, mortgaged your future a little bit. The chance of you being musculoskeletally intact to play on the floor with your child when you're 70 has now decreased. So the heavier you go, the fitter you are as a younger person, the less you will have as an older person. And if you don't believe me, go look at all your former Olympians. You show me a former world-class gymnast who doesn't have replaced hips and knees and shoulders. And it's rough. It's rough. I've had so many world-class athletes who said, man, if I'd known if it was going to hurt this bad, I never would have done it. 
The ones who are successful in their 70s and in their 80s. You know, I, I live in a very rural place. I'm in Canada. A lot of people where I live still heat their homes with wood. Go look at the 80-year-old who's out there chopping his own firewood. Big hands. But sit down and have a beer with them. How did you do it? Well, I never pushed real hard. Yeah. I always had a rest after. I never did two things the same day. If I did a real heavy day splitting firewood, the next day I did something else. I didn't do two days in a row. I paced myself. And you'll hear this time and time again. I never got real heavy. Uh, never abused drugs. Uh, you know, I see that beautiful girl over there, that beautiful 80-year-old. She's been my girl for 65 years. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, go look at the patterns and the patterns will reveal to you. So that was the foundation of the biblical training week. It's not for you, Joni. It's for me. It's okay. for a guy now. I have a bit of mileage on my body, as most of my colleagues do. I want to play with my grandchildren. Uh, I don't want to set any records. I hate getting sore hips, knees, back, hands. I, I just, gosh, if I can make it out a few more years and really live my best life. So the principles of the biblical training week is for people approaching retirement and really living out the most healthful final years. Do you want me to explain it? I'd love to, yeah. Because I, th yeah, I think so it's, I'll, it's I'll put, really I'll put the mechanics to it. Yeah, Don't please do, do two things in the same do. So I still split all my own firewood. Uh, I have a season for, for uh, doing things uh, in the winter. I love to cross-country ski. Uh, I, I still snowmobile, which I know is a bad thing. But uh, uh, in the summer, I kayak, canoe, uh, swim, uh, you know. The, just the simple pleasures, but I never do it to intense levels two days in a row, or at least I try not to. Um, so that, that would be a uh, principle. Um, I look at uh, a day, like say a, a day I do split firewood. Well, that is a cardiovascular training session. It's a strength training session, and it is a mobility uh, session to pick up heavy logs, drop them, split them, stack them, uh, etc. But after uh, a couple of days, I'll say to myself, have I tested my cardiovascular system? Have I tested my mobility system, which is far more important to me now than when I was in my 20s and 30s? Didn't worry about mobility, didn't need to. I yeah. do now. You know, I've, I'm hip replaced. <laughs> I've broken my hands, I've broken a vertebra in my neck, uh, uh, collarbone, um, well, I won't go through it. Broken my ribs. Uh, anyway, so I have to take care of these things. Two days a week, I make sure I strength train. So if I haven't done something physical and heavy, I will come down here and I will do strength and power training. Uh, so I, I, I won't do a, a sit-up. Uh, my body doesn't particularly like them, but I will do in a Roman chair heavy hip power flexion exercises. So a sit-up 
challenges hit flexion power. Yep. As I get into my 70s and 80s, the biggest risk in my life will be arresting a fall. Yep. Fall, protect myself. Yep. Big part of that is maintaining hip power. And you yep. get your hip out in front of you to arrest a fall, get the center of mass broadened, arrest the, the, the sorry, the base of support broadened, and arrest the fall of the center of mass. So uh, I'm, I'm making sure when doing hip power training, but not with sit-ups, I'll use a better exercise yes. with less risk and more reward, a Roman chair hip flexion. Um, I will do all sorts of uh, abdominal wall uh, isometrics. Uh, and, you know, I've happened to measure the man who has the strongest rotational core in the world. Do you think he's doing rotational landmines and Russian twists and whatnot? No. He's stopping twist. Yeah. Says so and he does one. Yeah. Yeah. When he does a landmine, he pivots around the toes. You see yep. how I'm locking my core? But if he gets you in a Greco Roman hold or grabs you with a, a neck pull behind and does a drop step and pulls you back and there's there's no defense. Or if he was to kick you, he could kick the legs out from underneath you, but watch the mechanic. Yeah. The hip power snaps the hips down, rib cage and pelvis stay together. That leg comes around in a baseball bat or a cricket bat. Yeah. Kicks your legs out from underneath you. Strongest yep. core, most functional core. Um but he trains in a very resilient uh, way. So two days a week strength train. Yep. If I haven't done that naturally in my life, two days a week I do mobility work. To, and I'm getting to be a little bit of an old man. I'm starting <laughs> to. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's so just, I am so <laughs> embarrassed when I get out in front of a group and have to give a, a speech and I have to talk to myself. <laughs> Dan Tall McGill. <laughs> And uh, uh, and then two days a week, I do something for my ticker. But yesterday, yep. I had a long bike ride. Our snow finally left two weeks ago, so I'm I've transitioned now. I'm into summer sports, but I, I won't ride uh, my bike today. I can just feel it a tiny bit in my left knee, so that yep. would be silly to do another heavy. So there you go. The seventh day. Thou shalt not do very much. <laughs> and that is the day that I just rest my body. Yeah. I might do a little bit of a walk with my wife or, or something very low grade. But, uh, you know, it, it, it hurts me when I see, oh, say, uh, someone in CrossFit and they'll post on social media, oh, today yeah. was my day off. I just went out for a 5K run. And I just thought, Gosh, that's not a be, day off yeah you know they they when they they think when they're 40 they're going to be with a 20 year old body that ain't going to happen and uh they are mortgaging their future to some degree without that rest and adaptation day and it's all about it. so it's sort of managing the, this biological cost, managing these adaptation schedules, and and, and that's the sort of takeaway well, point here. That so what? So you said, can, can I put a big framework on that? And please do. Yeah, a big framework is this: think of every system that is biological, whether it's an insect or a human or a cardiovascular system or a spine. Every system has a tipping point 
let's take vitamin D as a nutrient uh, because that's on my mind with the uh, sunshine starting to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Most Canadians are vitamin D deficient. If you are vitamin D deficient, you will have compromised health. Yeah. If you supplement with vitamin D, you will enhance that compromise to a tipping point. If you take more vitamin D, it then turns into a poison. It's fat yeah. soluble, uh, needs vitamin K for absorption and all the rest of it. Otherwise, bad things happen. Yeah. So there was a tipping point. Everything has a tipping point. So when you are training, you were on a teeter-totter now. Yeah. The fulcrum of the teeter-totter right here is the tipping point. If you are below the tipping point, you can stress the system. If you don't stress your body, you are so weak, you are vulnerable, sick, and all the rest of it. Your body thrives on stress, but it yeah. must be below the tipping point. When you cross the tipping point, you build cumulative trauma. You may not know it, but you are. Yep. Um, Etc. All kinds of non-beneficial things happen when you cross the tipping point. So that's what you're doing with your training. You're managing the uh, the tipping point. Now that tipping point in of itself will change. If you're injured, you just lowered your tipping point. Yeah. You better recognize that. <laughs> yeah. And 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 back off. And so your job in your training philosophy is to move the tipping point. Yeah. And stay underneath it. Yeah. That's what a trainer's job is. But then you need the discussion of, well, what's your goals? Because the more you push the tipping point now, the more miles are going onto those joints. And uh, again, there will, there will come a point where it's compromising uh, over life. So with that in mind, say someone has finished their their athletic career say it's advice to professor mcgill at age 35 or you said you know the the, the biblical training point uh sorry biblical training week wouldn't necessarily be for me right in, in my mid-30s so what advice would you give for someone in who's seeking to maintain you know some level of performance but but obviously not necessarily and is very much thinking about this longevity trade-off, right? The, this trade-off of don't want to be enormous, but you still want to, you know, function at a high level, higher than is necessary to sustain health. But do you see where I'm going with that? So sort of if you I, I think to- I do, but I my answer is I can't okay. give you advice until I assess you. Right. I would need to know your injury history. I yeah. would need to know your current level of fitness. I would yeah. need to know your training goals short term. This year, five years from now, and when you're retired. Right. Uh, and then I could give you personal advice. Right. But I don't think that's your question. I think your question is generic. What would I tell the 35-year-old I mean, in the general principle? Yeah, I don't love the generic right. questions, but I'm trying to make it sort of related. Okay, well, I'll, I'll give you a generic answer. <laughs> okay. Learn more tools other than barbell and dumbbell exercises. There are far too many people hurting themselves with a barbell doing deadlifts and squats when they would be so much more healthy learning other tools. Why don't you push a sled? 
Why don't you walk backwards up those beautiful hills you have in England? Yep. And what a wonderful neurological trick occurs. You walk backwards, pushing through the knee. And there's a technique to this. If you just do it and your, your feet yeah. are stuck out like this, you'll blow up an ACL ligament over time. So, yeah. you know, it, there there is a lot of expertise in this, but do it properly, proper monster walk, walking backwards up a hill. You will have such burden in your quads with such little knee stress that you won't be able to squat anymore and then walk forwards up the hill. And you will find a whole new thing going on in the back of your glutes. Pants. Those are called yeah. gluteal muscles. Yeah. Uh, because the brain perceived exhausted quads. But these are some of the neurological tricks that we would employ to uh, spread out the stress concentrations for general musculoskeletal efficiency. Right. But so anyway, change- there there would be my general No, I mean that's it's fascinating. So changing the kind of wear patterns, could that walking up hills be replicated? I'm thinking about people who live in sort of central London or something with like a, a backward sled drag, for example, like a weighted yes. backwards, that kind of thing. Sure. Um, that's really, that's really interesting. And then or, obviously- or if you're in central London, go get an old tire, throw a chain or a chain around it, drag it down your street. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. You don't I mean- need to go to a gym and a fancy, uh, uh, no, no, I, 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 I totally say the point. It's a bit like, a bit like Rocky training in the wilderness. Yeah, that's um, that's some of the best training I've ever seen. I'm talking to Professor Stuart McGill. I, I have to bring up the big three, and I know you know people talk about this, and millions of people put up YouTube videos of the big three, and they're horrible, right? I've heard you say this before. They're horrible. <laughs> But the big three, obviously, done. And and for anybody who's not, um, I think you mentioned Brian Carroll, so the 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 famous thirteen hundred pound uh, squatter that that you um, whose career you you, you basically saved, um, has a version of the big three on YouTube. Would you point them towards that? Presumably, that's going to be accurate. Yeah, it's very good. Okay, so so that he's gets- also he's also a, an excellent coach. Yep. And he doesn't only have one way of doing them. He adapts them yep. to the person. So say a person has extensor driven back pain. Yep. If you watch them do the big three, they'll get to a, a certain level. And then after that, yep. they lift with their spine versus right. more hip athleticism. So he might give a coaching cue to take away their pain. And uh, uh be more efficient in achieving the goal. But those big three exercises, there was quite a history to that. We, I've given you examples on the models of what joint micro movements are and when you load the disc and it flattens a bit, it naturally has these micro movements. And if a person says, oh, I got a little catch in my back when I moved a certain way, it's usually a micro movement that's involved or they roll over in bed and get a little bit of a tweak in their back up. Oh, that's a micro movement. So there are things how you, that you can use to assess them or just look at the patterns, read back mechanic, and it will show you what a micro movement feels like in your back. They're very common. And uh, doing more heavy barbell exercises will only make them worse. You're just flattening the disc a little bit more. So uh, we searched 
doing experiment after experiment with Olympians, with uh, grandmothers, with with we even did it with children in uh, different countries. Uh, in in Serbia, we ran a couple of child studies. So. But uh, anyway, we kept searching for exercises that guaranteed stability, more stiffness and control around the back, but to uh, also spare the spine. These are people with back pain. They get pain with more load into their back. So there were several criteria that the exercises that kept bubbling up to the top in terms of spine sparing, guaranteeing stability was the bird dog the side plank in its various forms, and something abdominal. We could use a modified curl up. We could use a little bit of an arm and a leg uh, yeah. tap, or we might advance that to a stir of the pod if they could withstand a three-point bend load in their spine, which is the category of a stir of the pod. Um, you know, but we found something like a paloff press. There's the cantilever, and we just created a micro movement in the spine again. So that yep. uh, wouldn't serve that particular person uh, very well. Whereas that exercise might be dandy for someone else. But that's where the big three came from. And then further science and investigation showed that there is a residual stiffness for some reason. We thought, oh, do you pump the muscles? And that adds a turgor. Um, it, we, we now believe it's, a, it, it's neural. So there are people, uh, world-class sprinters, who will, uh, before they get out on the track, do the big three. Why? They run a little bit faster. It's just a little bit more of a stone architecture here. So when the hips explode, they propel the thigh rather than bending the spine, which would be an energy leak. Yeah, etc. So it is not only uh, pain arresting and controlling, uh, they can be performance enhancing as well, all of which require a slightly different regimen. And, uh, but that's an ex explanation of the big three. And, and I know some people think, oh, McGill's program is the big three. No. I appreciate it. It's, it's not. A, yeah. Yeah. It's the assessment. It is matching a pain winding down strategy to that person's specific pain trigger and it's building them all back up again with appropriate mobility and stability through this fantastic linkage that we have to live. I don't think uh, there's enough consideration when strength coaches and trainers are creating programs for clients of the word transference. What you're really doing is hoping all the athleticism you're building in the gym transfers to real life. Well, how do you know that? You know, we've done studies where uh, hockey players, Canadian hockey players have notoriously stiff hips. They're in about the fifth percentile on average with the rest of the population. Yep. We did a study where uh, one of my uh, PhD physical therapists took them through a very comprehensive three-dimensional stretching program. They stretched the joint capsule, the nerves, the muscles, the fascia. Fabulous. They transferred those hockey players from the fifth percentile well into about the 70th percentile. Gave them fabulous hip mobility. Now, do you think that transferred to real life? Do you think they walked upstairs any different? Lee Rand, no, 
It did, not one little thing because the way the person moved was based on signature movements. We call them engrams. Yeah. So they're running an en a, a tape called an engram. The trainer has to change the engram in order to get the hardware change, the mobility, to get into the software, the engram, that then gets manifested as the new uh, movement. So until you work on the software side, you don't get the transfer. And we proved that within a, a big study that we did with the firefighting department in uh, Pensacola, Pensacola, Florida. Yeah. That study cost half a million dollars. People wow. Yeah. Don't, uh, appreciate it. Uh, before the study started, uh, and my colleagues on this, Jack Callahan and Tyson Beach and uh, Dave Frost, who are all professors in their own right now, uh, Frost and Beach were students at the time, but they lived in Pensacola for a couple of years. Um, they did very comprehensive studies of the firefighters' individual movements as they were doing firefighting tasks, fire ground tasks. Then one group trained with a coach who was basically a cheerleader. Oh, do more reps, you know, push harder, pull, and all these, these sorts of things. Like a lot of personal trainers, yeah. Like, well, basically, we were simulating the common personal training experience. Yeah. Then um, the second group worked with, uh, I don't know if you know Mark Verstegen. He used to run uh, Athletes Performance. I think it's now called Exos. Yes. So we had Exos coaches who are heavily influenced by the science that we've developed over the years. I'm great friends with Mark Verstegen. Uh, but anyway, very, very good coaches. Their training style is to, as the firefighters were doing lunges and squats, they would be taught, you know, uh, when you do a lunge, Think of the trajectory of your knee. Don't let it drop into valves. If it does, yeah. you know, keep your knee out hitting a target. Now you do that through uh, gluteal external rotation because the knee goes where the hip commands it to go and the ankle allows it to go. Yep. So, you know, these, these sorts of universal principles of the linkage mechanics were taught by the coaches to the firefighters. But not once did they teach them a firefighting task. They taught them how to move in patterns like carries, lunges, squats, um, stepping upstairs, and, and just using a wherewithal with their mechanics. And then at the end, we let them all go back and they get retested on their fire ground tasks. Remember, we never trained them. Those who were taught by Verstegen's coaches, very good coaches with good cues, moved so much better when they went back out onto the fire ground. The, 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 the firefighters who were with the coaches who were the cheerleaders, everyone got fitter. So now you have a fitter, stronger person going into more knee valgus, advancing more yeah. spinal sagittal plane deviations. In other words, all these markers for ACL damage, uh, spine injury, et cetera, that were, were increased. And uh, we've also done studies. We did a five-year study on the ATF, the Emergency Task Force of the Toronto Police Force. Where do you think the most dangerous place for a, uh, an elite police officer is to be in their occupational milieu? It, uh, probably at a desk or something. No, no, it's the weight room. 
Oh, it's the weight room. Okay, yeah. It's the weight room. By the way, they train and yeah. those who just did more reps, uh, you know, they might do a bunch of burpees and then a bunch of uh, uh, deadlifts to failure and all of yeah. these things. You know, that's break your form, lift a heavy weight, see how well you do. <laughs> yeah. So all this, I mean, yeah, I, I, I sometimes I go to the gym and I see people and yeah, you, you cringe. And I can't go to a gym anymore. <laughs> no, I know. Well, it must just be painful. And I know you're, you're friends with him, um, Pavel Satsulin, that this idea of the biological cost of your training, thinking about, you know, as you said, Ed, the managing the volume, managing the intensity, by which I mean the intensity, the the percentage of one rep max, the the weight, as well as how hard you feel like you're working is this is a kind of key takeaway to to, to make sure you you try to factor this in, and it's not just sort of junk volume or or, or things done without a specific plan in place because that can potentially be damaging. Uh it's more than potentially, it's almost assured. Okay. Pavel Satsulin, you're, yep. you're correct. He is a wonderful friend of mine, a master of the Russian science of fitness training, incredibly smart man. He has the strongest core I've ever measured. He's my size, six foot, 180 pounds. And even then, some of the he, strong men and Brian, Brian Carroll, and well, that's for incredible. rotational torsional torso strength. I just gave you the answer. Wow. Yes. Wow. Pavel's mother, I believe she's 85. In her apartment, she walks two steps at a time up the stairs, no elevator for her. Every second floor, she gets off the stairs, walks the length of the hallway, comes back, does another flight of stairs, two at a time, <laughs> and up she goes. Pavel's father held the record for American powerlifting, men over 75. I don't know if you know this. The, these, uh, <laughs> so, strength for life. So you can with with carefully managed, you know, emphasis on that's what he's talking about. Yeah, that's what he's talking about. You know, you talk to uh, the goat Ed Kong, greatest yeah. power lifter of all time, and people don't realize this. When Ed yeah. won and set that record, he was another quarter beyond the second competitor. So it would like it would be like Usain Bolt running a hundred meters at the Olympics. Six seconds. Uh, second Eight, place seconds. Yeah, is yeah. 10 seconds. He's at seven and a half. That's yeah. how dominant Ed was in the world. Do you know how many personal bests Ed would set every year? This is for the CrossFit crowd. And You're going to the say, <laughs> they're going to expect to say a lot, well, well, very one, few, one, right? One or two. Yeah. So, few. you know, Ed had a magnificent career. Once he set a world record, he had to let his body settle into that and adapt. But that's not what's encouraged uh, these days. It's get on after your, your next personal best. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I get it. If you're a sloth and your personal best is you just walked a block today and tomorrow you're going to walk a block and a half and that's your new personal best. That's a different context. Yeah. But when we get into uh, real load on the body, 
uh, the successful lifters were quite modest in the number of times they would take their body to the ultimate limit. Yeah. I suppose there's only a finite number of times you can have that kind of weight, you know, it's. Well, there's, there's a, uh, after, after, you, you talked to Brian when he squatted 1,306 pounds and how debt, how I was yeah. going to use the word devastating. And I, I thought for a second, maybe that's an overstatement, but the taxation on his joints, on his hormonal system, people don't realize that I, I've done podcasts with uh, Martins Licious, the, the current world's strongest man, uh, Ed Cohn, Bill Kazmaier, who you just have to love to death. The man <laughs> is just a gem. And what was he, world's strongest man for the first four years? Was One of the, yeah, I think so. Yeah, three or four. Yeah. Most giving guy you'd, you'd ever want to meet. And, and all of these, Blaine Sumner, who held the uh, Wilkes score, the highest body weight normalized uh, uh, powerlifting three? Yep. Uh, uh, to to when I work with these women and men, they have an ability to think strength because that's what strength is. It starts as a thought, and then to convert that thought into a pulse train through the nerves is it, it it only comes out of a place where you're almost ready to commit homicide on your own body you've got to shut down all of the fuse boxes ignore them learn how to bypass them psychologically physiologically etc and then get the muscles to respond and stiffen the body so it doesn't collapse i mean you know we'll we'll take a power lifter who who uh, say squats 900 well, we're going to put a thousand on their back and just to get them to learn the strategies of stiffening under uh, that kind of load it is you you, you could, it, if you're perceptive you will feel the electricity that room that you yeah. that person radiates the amount of electricity going through their body it's it's astounding and it has to come from this well, everyone says, with the exception of Bill Cosmer, they have to go to the darkest place. And you cannot be happy and be that intense in the strength that comes from a very, very dark place. And and so many of them will say, I couldn't get to the dark place that day, so my squat was off 200 pounds. It's incredible, <laughs> yeah. How, mean, how many of those are in a body? There's, there, there, there aren't that many of that ultimate experience uh, when a person really understands what is required. Thank you for listening to the Unfiltered Podcast. If you've got this far, I hope you won't mind if I ask you to leave a five-star review when you get the chance. We'd really appreciate it. And don't forget you can access all of our exclusive Unfiltered video interviews and features at unfilteredonline.com and the Unfiltered Extra YouTube channel. See you next time.